Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Welcome to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock, and this is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. Today, my guest is Gary Seligson. Gary's resume is incredible. He's originally from the suburbs of New York City and is a freelance drummer and percussionist. He graduated from the Hart School of Music at the University of Hartford. He's recorded and performed with a wide range of artists, including Elton John, Phil Collins, Cirque du Soleil, Leanne Rimes, Phoebe Snow, The Rascals, Stephen Schwartz, Paul Williams, Ben Vereen, Heather Headley, Tony Braxton, Adina Menzel, Billy Porter, Adam Pascal, Anthony Rapp, Joel Gray, and many, many others. For over 20 years, Gary has worked primarily for Broadway shows, originating the drum books and recording the cast albums for the following. Aida, Wicked, Tarzan, A Little Princess, School of Rock, and Soft Power. He was also the drummer on the Broadway run of Billy Elliot and played percussion for Motown the Musical. Currently, he's playing percussion for Mrs. Doubtfire the Musical. That, my friends, is a resume. Gary has achieved so much in his career. He's helped so many musicians. It's incredible. His story is something that you need to hear. We'll be right back right after this. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons, an opportunity to watch Clayton play in the pit of his show, and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My guest today is Gary Seligson. Thank you for being here, Gary. My pleasure, Clayton. Thanks for having me, man. I got a question for you. I really don't know where you're from. Are you from New York? No, I'm from West Orange, New Jersey. Oh, really? Yeah, which is about 
two miles maybe from where I live now. Aha. Uh-huh. Do you have a lot of family out there? Um, no, not anymore. My parents have passed away. Um, so, but interestingly, interestingly, I wound up here because it was a place uh, we wanted to, when we moved out of New York City, we wanted a place that was like an hour or less commuting in because my wife at the time was doing a nine to five gig in the city. And the thought of going any further than that was impossible for her. And of course, me, work, me working in town, I wanted to be close to. And South Orange is a great, South Orange Maplewood, a lot of people know there's a lot of uh, Broadway people out here. It's a good place. Do you see a lot of Broadway people when you uh, commute to the city? I, I really do. It's <laughs> probably, probably about, you know, on any given night, there's probably 25, 30 people on various trains that are going, that are making that trip. Maybe more. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of stagehands, some actors, some musicians. What got you into uh, playing drums? Did you have some kind of inspiration? Like, what was the thing that brought you to playing drums? Uh, I was I was the quintessential kid that pulled the pots and pans out of my mom's kitchen cupboard and was playing on the floor with, they gave me wooden spoons and I was really doing that. Uh, that's how it started. And my father um, noticed that I was into it. And so he bought me a toy, a metal toy uh, snare drum. It was a tiny, you know, like maybe four or five inches metal and a pair of wooden sticks. I can still picture this. I think he, I think I went through one and then I think he bought me another one. I dented the hell out of it. I would play it all the time, just like banging the drum. And then, uh, and there was a series of other drums that he bought for me over the years. I probably started at, I don't know, banging on things at three or something like that, maybe. Uh, and then it progressed from there. He, my dad definitely nurtured it. He's not a musician, but he loves music. He loved the music. Um, and he nurtured it, whether he realized he was going to turn me into a professional musician, probably if someone would have told, would have told him, Hey, you better quit this. You might become a musician. He may have stopped. <laughs> I don't really know. Maybe not. Maybe not. Um, but yes. It, and, uh, he was actually, what happened was I kept, he kept buying drums, you know, then there was like a little paper cardboard kind of drum set I got for a birthday one day and. It took an hour and a half before I went through the heads of those, right? Um, then eventually he bought a, a Kent, blue Kent snare drum with a stand, and I started taking lessons. And the, the way that came about, uh, he was his job was as a TV repairman, one of the things he did. And he made the fatal error of telling me one day that one of his customers is a professional drummer, and that guy lived in West Orange, where we were from. And so I was six, I believe, at the time. He told me that in the summer. And from that point on, I kept bugging my dad. I said, Dad, when can I get lessons with Mr. Germansky? You know, I kept asking him. And he, his, his stock answer was like, I was going to second grade. His stock answer was, okay, well, you're going to second grade, but when you go into third grade, we'll start. You can start then. And I think he was testing to see if I was really – going to be interested at that point. And I bugged him so much that what happened was I talked him into letting me start going into second grade. <laughs> and so the guy, so check this out, the guy that, this is Al Germansky. And what my father said was, you know, there's a, I went to his house and there's a picture of this guy playing at the White House with this orchestra. And I was like, that was all I needed to hear. So like, 
So, okay, so fast forward. So I, I talked him into it. I went to the first lesson and Al Germansky had just retired. So even though he had retired, his ace student, Glenn Weber, who you may know, um, took over Mr. Germansky's teaching practice. So Glenn Weber at the time was probably about 26 or something, 27. And that guy, Glenn, who's my good friend, taught me from second grade all the way through 12th grade. I had many years studying with Glenn. Eventually, Glenn moved to his own teaching studio. You know, he got Mr. Germansky's students and then he left. And, and Glenn Weber, uh, I owe a lot to him because he really kind of, you know, he, he kind of just kept me on the right track, like how, you know, you know, prepared me for the little things I was doing in junior high school, kept my interest. Eventually there was all city and all state. And then there was region jazz band and all state jazz band. And once I was taking private lessons, when I got old enough for there to be like, I remember a little orchestra in grade school. So probably like fourth grade or something, I was already playing drums in the little orchestra. And so it progressed from there. And um, I kept studying with Glenn Weber and eventually Glenn Weber said, you know, there's this thing called region North Jersey region uh, band. You can try out. And what they do is they divide the state into three different areas, North, Central and South, I guess. And they have, and music students can try out for, for to see where they get placed. And so I got placed in, you know, pretty high all the time. And so I was in region band playing, um, you know, in the percussion section. And as I got older, I heard about the jazz band, which was very select. And I made the region jazz band and I auditioned for Allstate. I did not get the Allstate jazz ensemble, but I got to play drums in the North Jersey regional jazz ensemble, which was amazing. I'm sure I was terrible, but I was good <laughs> enough to get it <laughs> somehow. I learned a lot. I remember, I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm in way over my head because, you know, was I really setting up the figures like Buddy Rich, like people I heard play? No, but I was getting through it and, you know, trying to hold the band together. I think I, that skill um, that started there playing, and I played in jazz ensembles in junior high school. There was one in high school. There certainly was one, not very organized. The schools were not very big, uh, but I got some experience. Doing Did that. you play in any rock bands when you were yeah. young? Yeah. Original rock bands or cover bands or what? Yeah. Again, I was really lucky, Clayton. So my, what happened um, when I was 13, my brother, who's six years older, had a friend who was, his brother was a trumpet player in a band in a neighboring town, a band that played like Chicago, the band Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears. It was a horn band, right? And he heard from, my brother heard from his friend that his brother is looking for a drummer. And so Ken, my brother, mentioned me. I was 13. So I went to that, I went, you know, my mom drove me to this guy's house. It was a band with two trumpets, trombone, saxophone, uh, bass, guitar, drums, keyboard, you know, like Chicago, basically. And they liked me. They were in high school. They were about three, four years older than me. They liked me enough to keep me in the band. That was my first experience. And so we would rehearse like every week, you know, just jamming. This guy had a, a basement that accommodated that. There was drums already there. Or I guess I kept my drums there at some point. That's what it was. The drums were there. 
and we would rehearse these Chicago tunes, you know, like 25 or six to four and make me smile. And you made me so very, you know, really playing this music, trying to. And of course I was trying to learn this in my lessons every week. Um, and then what happened was that band really didn't do any gigs. It was more like a rehearsal band situation. I think we did about two gigs may or may not have paid anything like a beach party once and something else. Um, but one of the guitar players at one point in that band, who was four years older than me, was had a band, a little quartet that he used to play kids' parties with. And he asked me, Steve Kaplan asked me, hey, do you want to do this? It actually pays money. And I said, well, of course. Okay, great. I'll pick you up, you and your drums, and we'll go to the, you know. And, and what was popular back in New Jersey and, and where I'm from uh, at that time, this is in the 70s, mid to late 70s, were bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah parties. That's when a Jewish 13-year-old boy or girl, they have a celebration when he becomes 13. And what was in vogue those days was that the kid would get to have his own little party with his friends and the parents would have a big party with the kid and all the relatives. But these little throw together parties would be put together. And the band that I played with was a band that used to play those parties. So they'd, hide, they'd get us for little money and we'd play these dances for people. So the point being, at age 13 and 14, 15, 16, all through high school, I was playing these gigs and we'd have up, you know, by the time I got out of high school, I was doing like two or three gigs a weekend sometimes. Oh, wow. My other friends would be like, where's Gary? What are you doing tonight, Gary? And they'll be playing poker or something. I'm like, sorry, I got a gig. I'm not going to be there. You know. Wow, you were working really young. I was That's working. Good. I was working. And believe it or not, Clayton, from that, um, from that gig... I met a guy whose father was a country music dude who was a yodeler. And he used to play, he had a, I'm not kidding, Idaho Ed. And he asked me, the kid, his son asked me if I wanted to play in Idaho's band. Idaho would play at VFW halls for like firemen's balls and things like that, square dances. So when I was like in 16, 17, I was playing these gigs also with him. So point being, I had a lot of experience, like playing, holding a band together, doing these things in a professional way. I wasn't making a killing, but I was getting paid. And that, that I know that, that um, all that time playing for people dancing all the time really allowed me to feel fairly comfortable with making a band feel comfortable, I, I think. Looking back now, all these decades later, I know that was really helpful. Did you pursue your education after high school uh, studying music? Yeah, I went to Hart School of Music. In Hartford, all right. In Hartford. Oh, yeah, yes. wait, are you from Hartford? Because I I'm, heard from, you I'm from Manchester, Connecticut. You're from Manchester? Well, yeah, I went right to down the street. You know, all, yeah. you know all about Hartford, right? Didn't uh, Chris Yankee go there, too? Chris Yankee was there a few years after me. And oh, so wow. Did, so did Clancy. Yankee was there at the same time as John Clancy. Ah, wow, small world. Now, why'd you choose Hart and not Berkeley or North Texas State? I auditioned at the time at Glassboro State, which is a New Jersey school. I got in there. I auditioned at Eastman School of Music. I did not, I got waitlisted there. That was, that was a scary audition. I did terribly. The guy, John Beck, I'm sure he's a masterful guy, but he, he completely intimidated me. It didn't, I mean, I played okay. I got waitlisted. And then the Hart School of Music, and the reason I knew about Hart was because I was playing in a community orchestra locally, 
and a percussionist, a timpanist in that orchestra, I was talking to him about potential music schools for me. And he said, well, you should go to think about heart. I just got out of there. And I'll leave Alexander Leapak is the main teacher there. And he's incredible. You'll have a great time there. So I was like, okay, Hartford's not nearby, you know, and I auditioned for Leapak there. And from the moment I met Al Leapak, he was like the coolest dude I'd ever seen in my life. And he was in the sixties at that point. He had like a corduroy jacket on, he used to carry a cigar around, not lit, but, you know, <laughs> the uh, patches on his elbow too, and well, no, no, he was cooler <laughs> than that. Dark glasses, you know, he was bad, bad boy, and he mm. was an amazing. He's an amazing. He's, he passed away maybe fifteen years ago. He was an amazing teacher, an amazing composer. He played great jazz drums. He played excellent timpani. Emil Richards, the percussionist, is is an old friend of Leapak. Actually, when I got to Heart. I decided to go there and I learned like in the first month that Jeff Procaro, well, first of all, Joe Procaro is from Hartford. You probably know this, right? Did you know uh, that? I didn't know that. You know the story? This is an amazing story. Hartford, Connecticut was the home of uh, Alexander Lee Pack and his two students that were really famous were Joe Procaro, who's Jeff's father, who was in the LA studio scene forever, and Emil Richards, the percussionist, a mallet guy. They were both, the three of them were in the Hartford Symphony together. They were fast. They were all friends. And both of them studied with Leapak. And so um, when I got to Hart, I learned that, wait a minute, Jeff Procaro's father, Joe was from Hartford. And, and Leapak, I believe, is Jeff's godfather. That's how close they were. <laughs> wow. So all that blew my mind, you know. Anyway, Hart was a great place for me. Tell you a little story about... Uh... Growing up in Connecticut now, I didn't yeah. know anything about jazz until I went to Howard. I didn't study music at Howard University, but I would go to the library and I would listen to jazz records and I'd, I'd just listen to every Miles Davis record and I'd just sit there and listen. But I was kind of introduced to jazz and a legendary jazz musician by accident. I didn't realize who he was until later. So me and a friend of mine would go to Keeney Park and we take our drums and we just jam together. Then we saw this older guy come out with a shake array. This and is Keeney Park in Manchester or Keeney Park at Howard? Keeney Park in Hartford, Connecticut. Hartford, Keeney. Yes. So he came out and was like jamming with us. He was like doing a shake. He's like, man, you guys sound great. And we were like, get out of here, old man. Not realizing it was Jackie McLean. Oh, that was Jackie. <laughs> Yes, we're like, damn. I guess we, you know, we found out later who he was, and then I learned, you know, how he kind of mentored Tony Williams, I think. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can tell you, I, Jackie was at heart when I was there. Oh, really? Yeah. One of the most incredible musical experiences I ever had was playing a duet with Jackie. Oh, uh, wow. Checking me out. He was checking me out. <laughs> Check this out. This is weird. So, so uh, I was playing a lot of jazz at heart. And it's not a big, it's not like, it's not as big as Eastman School of Music. It's certainly not nearly as big as North Texas. It's a pretty small program. When I was there, there was probably about 20 percussion majors, maybe 15, actually. The other five or seven of them were education majors. Um, so after like two or three years, I kind of became a big fish in a small pond, meaning that I was playing in the jazz ensemble. I was playing it with Paul Jeffrey, who had like a bebop jazz ensemble. I was playing a lot and I was playing with a lot of friends of mine who are now 
great jazz musicians, professional Saul Rubin and other people. And I think at one point, and I was taking Jackie McLean, we used to teach jazz history classes. I was always in Jackie's class. Jackie knew me, you know, it's a small building. And at one point, Jackie says, hey, Gary, what are you doing tomorrow at four o'clock? I was like, uh, nothing. What do you need? And he said, I want to play with you. I'll meet you. Which one of these practice rooms is yours? I point to it. He's like, okay, I'll meet you there at four o'clock tomorrow. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Uh, I didn't really think that much of it because I was so busy with school. You know, like there was so much, I was playing so much. And so the time came around. I was like, wait, I'm meeting Jackie in 20 minutes. You know, we're going to go play. He, He has his alto with him. We walk in, he closes the door. And I don't know, I think he just started playing. You know, he's an amazing, masterful, iconic jazz legend. And, you know, he used to sub for Charlie Parker, for those, anybody listening who doesn't know, when Bird couldn't make the gig because he was strung out on heroin, Jackie was there. They used to call him Little Bird. Uh He was with Mingus. He was with, you know, Jackie McLean, yeah, is responsible for Jack Jeanette getting with Miles, Tony Williams getting with Miles. Uh He's known, he was known for finding drummers. So he was clearly, he was like, let's check out what this guy's all about. Anyway, we played for about 25 minutes. I wish I would have recorded it. Of course I didn't. And that was it. He didn't hire me for his band. (laughs) Nothing, nothing like amazing came out of it, except, <laughs> except it was absolutely thrilling. And when he left the room, I was like, holy shit. That's you know, cool. Because it was like jamming with Coltrane, basically. <laughs> it was heavy, wow. heavy. Anyway, you brought him up, so. Yeah, that's my, you know. That's Jackie story. So interesting how, because he, he was just, he gravitated towards drummers. It's just so interesting. Now, speaking of drummers and uh, D- Jack DeJanet and, Tony Williams, who were some of your influences growing up? Who'd you look at when you were in your teens in high school and in college? Yeah. Um, the, I've always had a really wide variety of tastes and I've done a lot of different stuff, like different styles of music. Um, I can, I, people that come to mind because I did a lot of big band stuff, Sonny Payne with Basie, that guy I really, really, really loved. And there was a record live at Birdland, basically at Birdland, or basically live at Birdland. That, you know, he, he's a major one for me. I, I was mystified by the way he played. Could set up the band and keep it so exciting and like dynamics from, from high to low all the time and just swinging his ass off. Now he's one. Steve Gadd, absolutely. You know, when I was in high school and co- college it was all about steve gadd he was playing with korea chick korea's group and he was on everybody's records tom scott's you know as you know so steve gadd was a major influence um for me um jeff Procaro, yeah uh there's many people man and through the years it, it's changed but when i was so when i was in college hartford is about two and a half hours from where i live in new jersey and in the summers i usually stay up there but, but sometimes I'd come home and whenever I was home, I was a real jazz head during that time. I would always go to the city. I'd get the village voice, which was the local paper and find out who was playing where and go hear these guys. So I heard in the same room many times, Elvin Jones. I love Elvin Jones. I heard him many times, Billy Higgins. I love Billy Higgins, Art Blakey many times. So I'm coming from there too. You know, like that's a big part of who I am. Um, 
those are people that come to mind. I, I used to, then as I got older, uh, we can talk about it later, but I, when I was on the road, I used to drive around the country and I had a CD player and I'd have these long drives. And so I would listen to CDs and I, one drummer on the Bonnie Raitt records that I really loved on um, this guy, Tony, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Branigal or something. He's on Nick of Time and, and the one after that. Um, but you know, the, the way they feel, the way the music feels. I love John Robinson on the live Rufus and Chaka Khan record. Oh man, yes. That, I'm sure you know, yeah, that blows my mind. But what a record that is, man, you know? So there's been so many. After you got out of college, did you say, you know what? I want to play Broadway musicals. No. <laughs> Not really. What did you want to do after college? Although if you would have asked me, I would have said, sure. <laughs> you know? did, did you, was that even on the radar back then? Mm, minorly. I had been to a couple of Broadway shows as a kid. My parents, we went to two or three. They're very expensive even back then. But they, then my dad was into that. And so, he, you know, um, I saw a couple um, and, I, and he pointed out to me, look, see those guys down there in, the or in that hole? That's the orchestra pit. See, he's by the drums. That's the drummer. So he, my radar, he, he um, enabled me to, to, to notice this. And I never forgot that, you know, that always fascinated me. These days, as you know, it's such a shame because a lot of times the pit is covered with black and we're not seeing it all. We're in the back room, but I digress. Anyway, <laughs> um, so what yes. happened to me, I, I went to hard to have this amazing, amazing education with Lee Pack where I played a lot of percussion. I was a percussion major, I played a lot of difficult classical, modern classical music. I played a lot of jazz, small group, a lot of big band stuff. At one point I was in five different big bands. Two wow. of them played, yeah, two of them played professionally, like, I mean, played gigs. The Valley Big Band, we recorded, and we played all over town in Hartford and up in Amherst. And the other one was Al Gentile, which is Al Gentile's band, which is like a society band that played like Glenn Miller kind of stuff, but he, we gigged. So, and then, then there was a reading band, which this guy, Chick Chiquetti's an arranger, maybe you know that name. Remember the 880 Club? You ever go there? Jazz Club in, in Hartford? Oh my God, yes. I think it's 880 Maple, right? Yeah, you're right. Rehearsal on Monday nights. Yeah, I forgot about that. Anyway, so I was doing a lot of big band playing, which also I know helped my playing. Um, my point being, so when I graduated Hart, I was like, okay, Lee Pack has, a, has connections in, in Los Angeles. A lot of his students were playing the film music and TV music in LA. And some of his students had gone there. So I thought, well, I could either go to LA and try that or go to New York or go to Nashville. I didn't know anybody in Nashville. LA, I didn't want to go to LA. Somehow in my brain, I thought, I really love jazz music. And if I go to LA, I'm going to be missing all that straight ahead acoustic jazz music that I love hearing in the clubs. I didn't know if I could hang as a jazz musician in New York, but I knew that I loved that music and I knew that there was a greater concentration of that style of bebop if you will, you know, like modern acoustic jazz. I knew there was more of that in New York. So at the time I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to New York first. So that summer I was living in Hart Hartford and an article in Modern Drummer came out where there was an interview with Gary Chester. 
Gary Chester was a studio drummer, kind of a contemporary of Bernard Purdy's. He's, he was a white guy, um, kind of like Hal Blaine of New York. A little bit. And I read this interview with this guy and he really turned my head around because he was all about the studio scene in New York and some, something clicked in my brain. I was like, you know what? I think I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to, I'm going to go home and I call up Gary Chester, see if I can get on his list and maybe through him, I can work my way into the studio scene in New York. That was in 1984. And at that time, drum machines were coming along and the studio scene was going out the window. But I started, he, eventually he took me in, um, there was an opening, and I studied with him for about a year. And he really helped me in a lot of ways, made me think completely differently about the drums. He has, a, people probably know about him, he has a really ambidextrous approach. I'm a natural lefty, but I always play drums righty. So for me, when you study with him, everything you do left-handed, you do right-handed, you sing everything that you play, all these, all these wacky, all, not wacky, all these interesting methods of learning how to play the instrument in a completely new way for me. Um, anyway, about into about lesson seven or eight, he, every week I'd go to his place and after like the fifth, and he would say to me, Gary, what'd you do this week? And I'd say, well, I played for this musical, Pirates of Penzance, where I played the mallet book. Do you know the show? He goes, well, yeah, I know the show. And I was telling him about the mallet book and how difficult it was. And it is a really difficult mallet book. He's like, okay. And then I would tell him, and I did this gig on drums and that thing. And he always wanted to know. And one day after about eight lessons or so, he said, man, you're going to have to figure out what you want to do. Do you want to play percussion or do you want to play drums in New York? Because what's going to happen to you is you're going to get on a gig and it's going to be like a high profile gig. And there's going to be contractor, a contractor there and you're going to be playing percussion and he's going to say, oh, you're a percussionist. And then if you try and tell him, well, I play drums too, he's going to be like, yeah, uh, okay, I see you're a percussionist. So Gary Chester's advice to me, which wasn't the best at the time, was like, you have to make a decision. And uh, I did make a decision that I wanted to play drums because I preferred it. And part of me felt really good about, okay, now I don't, now I don't have to practice marimba anymore. Now I don't have to worry about all these notes. And so it worked out great. But the, you asked how I got into Broadway. So shortly after that, after making that decision, um, one time I went into a lesson and he stopped the lesson. He said, okay, um, you ever think about playing on Broadway? And I said, well, I guess I've thought about it, but I don't really know how to go about it. He said, okay, here's what you're going to do. My student, Howard Joins, he has a Broadway show right now. I'm going to tell him that you're going to call him. And I'm going to tell him to put you on his sub list. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. My lesson was like on Tuesday. He said, you call Thursday. <laughs> I call, call Howie on Thursday because I'm going to see Howie tomorrow. I'll tell him. And that's what I did. I called Howie. Never met him before in my life. I said, Howie, it's Gary Selickson. I'm Gary Chester's student. And he says, oh, yeah, Howie, uh, Gary Chester told me about you. I don't have any room at all. But if you want to come watch the show, you can sit next to me and watch the show. If, you want, if it's something you think you can do, take home the book, learn the show. At some point, I might need you. Okay, so, so I went to watch. And it was The King and I. The way it was set up in the pit was he was at the drums here and the stage was where, 
was in front of him. He was looking at the stage, directly at the stage. And I don't remember the theater. I want to say it's a Broadway theater, but I don't know. Um, and he was high up and the stage was not that high, not much higher. So the lip of the stage was right in front of him. Where I watched Gary was, I mean, where I watched Howie was facing him underneath the stage, right? So he's playing here and I'm watching directly opposite. And I, I watch the show and he says, okay, do you think you can do, you want to learn this? I'm like, sure, here's the book. Call me when you have it down. And I was fresh out of college. I was on my, I was studying with Gary Chester, doing all this ambidextrous wild shit. I was like, this is not hard. I can learn this. I learned it. And I called him in a couple of weeks or whatever it was, three weeks. He said, okay, great. I don't need you, but just know that one day I might call you on a Tuesday to play Friday night. And I was like, okay. About four months went by. He called me on Tuesday because that's how he does it. He calls he gets the stubs in the beginning of the week. He said, can you play Saturday night? And I said, I said, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> so at that, from that point, of course, I was like, holy shit, I'm going to do this. He said, okay, good. Come watch. Why don't you watch Friday night again? And then it's your Saturday. I'm like, fine. Watch on Friday. I'm like, I, I can do, you know, I already knew the show at that point, I thought. Oh no. Um, so yeah, you ready? So, so, um, Saturday rolls around and at about five o'clock, it's an eight o'clock show at about five o'clock. I enter the pit and the other one had just ended 20 minutes before. And I'm thinking, okay, this is great. I got two hours easy to relax, get used to his drums, blah, blah, blah. I climb up on his drums. I sit down at the drums. First of all, he sits about a foot and a half higher than I do at, the, at that time he did about a foot higher. And, and the book for King and I is a lot of two beat stuff. It's kind of orchestral. It's beautiful symphonic music. There was a set of bells. I think there was um, some wood blocks, a set of bells and, you know, a small drum set with like an Indian Tom Tom, a Chinese Tom Tom. So I sit down at the drums. I'm like, Oh shit, this is really high. And then I go to play the bass drum pedal and the pedal was so tight, Clayton, to this day, I've never felt anything remotely <laughs> that tight. It was like, <laughs> I'm like, holy shit, what's going on here? I'm freaking Wait, out. That was the first time you played his drums? Yeah. Oh, my God. Which is a valuable lesson for everybody listening. <laughs> anyway, so I'm flipping out at this point. I'm like, holy cow, this feels nothing. Everything is so different. I'm a foot higher. The pedal, like I have to play quietly, like a piano, a mezzo piano, boom, just feathering. Everything was like difficult. And then what happens next is the worst part of it. So I'm about four minutes into playing and I'm not playing loud. I'm just touching stuff. Bing, bang, boom, 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 you know, ting, just to see where stuff is. And I hear <laughs> the pit door opens in front of me, right? And this woman comes out. She's a dresser. She looks at me. She's completely mad. She's like, who are you, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I'm Gary Selix, and I'm going to play drums for the first time tonight for Howie. He goes, you can't be here now. People are sleeping. Yeah, I was about to say you people are sleeping. can't make any noise. You have to leave. You can come at 730. Oh, my God. Clayton, for the next hour and 45 minutes, I walked around Midtown getting more and more nervous with every step. I, I was like, what am I? I was losing my mind. Anyway. I go back at 7.30, I play, you know, 
Well, then the next thing I have, I'm like, I'm freaking out because now I know I can't make a lot of noise because there's, you know, there's their house is filling up. I'm like, I know the show. I've learned the show. I can play the show. I'm on my game. It'll be fun. Next thing that happens at about two minutes to eight, the conductor comes through that same door. He looks at me. I'm like a little kid. you know. I'm like 25. He's like, who the hell are you? It's Saturday night on Broadway and freaking Neil Brenner is the star of the show. It's his oh, big Oh, man. Dig it? So he comes through, you know, and he looks at me. He's petrified. I never met him. I, now I know. Maybe if you have an opportunity to meet the music director, you should say, hi, just so you know, I'll be here Saturday night. Gary. Nice. You know, just, just to get anything going on. Anyway, he looks at me. He keeps walking. He's on the podium. Next thing I know, basically, he's tapping the baton. It's like we play an overture. And I'm like, I got through the overture. It was an out-of-body experience for the next two acts. And I got through. Everything was cool. I made the cut. Okay, good. But when Yul Brenner came on stage, he was like right in front of me because the lip of the stage was probably about, I don't know, he's, he's pretty tall and he was wearing this regal red suit. All the lights are on him, King of Siam, you know, and he's in front of me. I wasn't prepared for that either. And he looked at me with like his cold, steely eyes like, if you mess up this show, dude, I'm going to have your head. You know, I was getting all this stuff. Anyway, it was trial by fire, Clayton, and that's my first show. That was my first experience on Broadway, and I learned many lessons. Now, every time from that point on, anytime I sub the show for somebody else, I would say, "Can I just while I'm watching on the break?" Can I, I'd, I would ask, "Can I just sit here for a minute? I just want to feel where things are, so that I know when I go home and put the kit together, I know what I'm up against. I know what it's going to feel like." That, that. Because you know it's like driving a car and you and you can't move the seat or you can't move the mirrors or it's just like that, man. And yeah, that was number one. Number two is if you can um, somehow. It's all about you know one of the things for me I've learned through the years. It's all about making sure people are comfortable and making the band feel good, especially making the music director feel like you're paying attention to him or or her. What year was that? 1985 or four. Wow. I think it was 84. Did you sub at any other shows after that? That happened. And I never played the show again. I don't know why, but I know that I was approved. So Howie said, we could ask him, you can ask him at a later date. No, I think I was approved, but the word got around really fast that I was successful there. And I immediately started subbing for Tom Oldekowski. At that time, Radio City Music Hall had a summer Disney show. And I started subbing for, for Tom there immediately, like weeks later. Tom, nobody wanted to hire me. I mean, well, Tom, Tom was one of the first people I called before I called Howie, actually, because Tom went to Hart also. And so we had the same teacher. So when I got to New York, I called Tom right away. I said, hey, man, can I sub for you? And he's like, ah. He, he was kind of putting me off. But once he knew I was successful for Howie, then all of a sudden the gate was open for Tom. So I played a bunch of shows at, 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 the, at the music hall, which was completely different because there everything's on a click. Wait, so Very he's been doing that show since the 80s? Um, what's, what was the question? He, he, you, you're talking about Radio City Music Hall, right? Yeah, Tom was uh, Tom has finally left about two years ago. Really? Yep. Oh, wow. But for a long time, they, did not, they stopped having a summer show, so, Tom, so it would only be the Christmas show. But he held that chair for... I don't know, decades. Great drummer. I love Tom Olkowski. 
So I started subbing for Tom. And then after that, uh, Howie was, Howie had gotten little shop of horrors. I guess King and I closed little shop of horrors was downtown in the first theater on second Avenue there. And I subbed a lot for him there. I subbed at radio city. Um, was there anything else at that point? Those were the two. And then, and it was only for uh, maybe six weeks, five weeks of that, maybe four. And then I got a call to go on the road to replace somebody on the national. It was a bus and truck tour, a national tour of On Your Toes, a show called On Your Toes. The drummer who was on the tour was more of a percussionist. And there was some big band stuff happening. And they weren't happy with that aspect of it. So they needed somebody really quick. So Red Press, who I didn't know, called me and said, I got your name from blah, blah, blah. Can you go out of town? And at the time, I was still studying with Gary Chester. And he, I, he, it sounded great to me, you know, like 20 cities for over the course of like 14 weeks or something like that. And I said, yeah, man, I think I'm interested. I would love to do this. And I went to my lesson the next day and told Gary Chester, who every week he'd asked me as I showed up from LA, so what's new, man? Would you do this? Expecting me, expecting for me to say, well, um, I have a record, uh, a jingle date with, you know, Coca-Cola this week. But instead I said, actually, I got a call to go on the road with a show for 14 weeks. I'm really excited about it. And he freaked out. Gary Chester freaked out. He's like, you can't leave town for 12 weeks. I'm like, uh, why not? It pays three times more than what I'm making now. At the time, I was playing a lot of club dates, weddings and bar mitzvahs and society gigs all over town, schlepping my drums in and out of kitchens, in the hotels, double parking your car, bringing the drum, you know the deal, in a tuxedo in the tri-state area. I loved it. It was a good band. I did a bunch of it. It's fun. But here, all of a sudden, I have my own Broadway show, in effect, and there's somebody else is bringing the drums around. I'm just set them up and play in Scranton for a couple of nights. And then we go to Milwaukee and it's on the bus. And, you know, the whole thing sounded great to me. And Gary Chester was like, no, don't leave town. Never leave town for more than four weeks. I'm like, wow. Why? I've already told him yes. He said, no, I don't think you should take it, man. Because if you leave, so his, so here's what, here's what his point of view was. He was a studio guy that used to work sessions from like 10 to one, two to five, seven to 10, whatever, three or four a day. And once you get on the list of radio, you know, once you're on people, the contractor's list of someone that can do the gig, you get that much, there's that much work. And he was grooming me and his other students for that. The problem was drum machines had come along and all those jingles were now being done by machines, which he didn't really realize, I think. So his advice was, Gary, if you leave town, when somebody calls you, when they hear you're out of town, they're going to go on to the next person. You're going to miss your spot. And I was like, but, but I haven't done any of this work and here's $1,400 a week, you know, plus per diem or whatever it was. And I'm done playing hotels. You know, this is great. So I went against his will in a way, not that he was holding me to the fire, mm-hmm. but his recommendation. And he told me, he said, man, here's what's going to happen to you. You're gonna, and he loved me as a student. He said, I think what's going to happen is you're going to do 12 weeks and it's going to turn, you'll see. It's going to turn into six months. It's going to turn into a year. going to turn into a year and a half, two years. Well, guess what, Clayton? After, four, after the 12 weeks, they extended in, they, had, they tacked on Toronto for a month and Detroit for a month. So suddenly it was eight more weeks. And I had to call up Gary and say, uh, Gary, I'm not going to be back because you were right. And my last week, or second to last week in Detroit, I got a phone call from a friend of mine from college, John Hahn, who was on the road with Dreamgirls. They were about to go to Japan. 
the percussionist was leaving the tour and John was like, Hey man, we're going to Japan. Are you available? Do you want to, do you want to play percussion on this? And I think the drummer's leaving in a few months. He can move over to the drum chair. I was like, what Japan? Another. And I was like, yes, I'm going to do it. So point being, I went on the road with that show <laughs> right on your toes. I wound up being, it's went from 12 weeks to about 20. And then immediately seamlessly into dream girls, which was 14 months, including Japan. Um, then that came to New York to play a little stint at the Ambassador Theater. They thought it was going to be a stop on the tour, but we got such a slamming review in the Times. And at the time, the New York Times critic was all-powerful, Ben Br uh, Frank Rich. He gave us such a great review that the show wound up running for six months. So after being on the road solid for two years, Clayton, I came home to my own Broadway gig on percussion playing Dreamgirls. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? And then, so that was like another year. No, I don't know how long it was. I, I think a year or so. And then, so that closed. That was my first Broadway show. Dreamgirls? Dreamgirls playing percussion. It was the revival of Dreamgirls. Ah, wow. Who was on drums back then? Um, at that point, it was Steve Singer. Before that, it was, you know, Wally Gator. Did you know Wally? I heard the name. He's great. He was Lionel Hampton's drummer for a long time. He was oh, a, he's a, kind of kind of a big guy, right? Big guy. Yeah, yeah man. I think I met him once. He's such a great drummer and a sweetheart. He was the original drummer. When I got to the tour, he was the man. And then he left, and Steve Singer took over. You know Steve Singer? Yes. Took over on drums. And so I never got to – I would sub on the drum book in, on Broadway. But my chair was a lot like the Motown chair. It was vibes, percussion, vibes, timpani, tambourine. It was just one percussionist. So what year was that? That was 87 when it was on Broadway, but 86, 87 on the road. So it was, it was on your toes, 84, no, 85. It was 85, basically, into 86. And then Dreamgirls, 86 through 87. Then Dreamgirls closed. The tour stopped. And at that point, I thought I was done with Broadway. I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I was in a rock band called Chillers. We were trying to get a record deal. Never did. So we never got a record deal. And I tried to like, I didn't want to play on Broadway. I thought, uh, I want to be more of a rock. I want to be more of a drummer. Broadway seems, you know, I'd been playing percussion. I was like, in my brain, my twisted way of thinking when I was 26 or something, I was like, you know, let's leave this alone for a while. Until one day I got a call. I was living in Jersey City and Mel Rodman, who was the contractor, who was contracting Cats, and then Les Miserables and Miss Saigon. He had all, he had like all the Andrew Lloyd Webber, Cameron McIntosh shows, which were huge at the time. He needed a drummer to do one of the Cats tours. He said, you want to go on the road? And I said, you know what? I do. I just bought a car. I had enough of the hotels, a rock band. Nothing was happening. I wasn't subbing. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Solid money. My new car. And it was national, national tour, so... It was, at the time, at least a week or usually two or three in a, in a city. I loved it. And I, I did a year of Cats in 1988. And then the drummer on the Les Miserables tour had to leave. The same contractor was hiring for both tours. I called Mel after a year of the contract. I said, you know what? I heard Gary Tillman is leaving the Les Mis tour. Do you, need, do you have anybody for that? And he said, you know, as a matter of fact, I don't. I said, well, do you mind if I move from Cats to Les Mis? Because I love being on the road. And I did that. That I wound up doing for five years. So at that point, it was a year of Cats, 
five years in Les Mis. I met my wife after about three years. Uh, we got married five years after that, seven years after that. Um, then from there, Miss Saigon tour opened up and I went from Les Mis directly to the Miss Saigon tour, which was doing even longer stays. I was on the road for nine years solid. A year of Cats, five with Les Mis, and three with Miss Saigon, basically. And then I came home. So when Gary Chester said, you know what, Gary, if you leave town for more than four weeks, you're going to be gone for a year or maybe longer. You know what? He was right. First it was a year and a half. Then I was home for a year or so. But I came back with a Broadway show. Then I was home for about a year and a half. And then I went on the road for nine years with my car, always driving around. I loved it. Because a lot, of, a few of the guys on Cats, on the, they used to travel the whole band. So there was like 18 people in the band. Out of those 18 people, there was probably 12 or 14 cars. On the Les Mis band, we had 21 pieces in the orchestra. Everybody drove, I think, 19 people drove. You could do it because, you know, we'd play Kansas City and then they'd have to load this whole giant set for a day and a half into the trucks and the trucks would go slowly traverse the country. And I'd be like, oh, I'm leaving at seven in the morning or nine or whatever time, you know, just drive to, from Des Moines to Indianapolis or Indianapolis to Portland or whatever it was, I would do it. When you toured a lot, do you have favorite cities in the United States? Oh, good one. Um, yeah, I guess. Definitely. Your top five favorite cities. Oh, wow. But this is a long time ago. Yeah, I know. Things have changed really from the, the 90s to today. Well, yeah, back then. Loved, at the time, I loved Portland, Oregon. I loved Seattle. Portland had a great music scene. I loved the Portland coast. I had my car so I could, you know, the days during the day when I had time off, I'd, I'd be a little bit adventurous, you know, and on days off, if we were there for a few weeks. So I'd go to the, I love the Portland coast. I love the jazz scene. I love the music scene. I love the way the people are there. That was in the 90s. I loved Seattle for similar reasons. I love San Diego for the weather. I know you love that too. Oh, uh, yes. Um, you know, I love Austin. Blows my mind. Nashville, the music scene in Nashville was amazing, is amazing. Those are some cities that come to mind. San Francisco, yes. So you came off the road to do a show in New York? No. I can't. So in 90, my dad died in 96. I stayed on the road um, for about another year. But all after my dad died, my mom was here by herself. And I was like, you know what? In the back of my mind, I was like, I, I better. I'm here. I've been traveling for, you know, better part of nine years on the road. Maybe this is enough. And all through the oh, all these years, I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back to New York? Am I going to relocate to L.A.? For a long time, I thought I would just move to Hawaii. Seriously and just play jazz, like get a trio gig, and just because I love to swim. And I was a vegetarian. I was like, why not just move to Hawaii and by myself? I can really healthy lifestyle, play jazz in a trio or whatever, and live there. <laughs> but so my dad died, and I was like, you know what? I got to figure this out. First stop, New Jersey. Maybe I'll check out New York. And Clayton, I'm not kidding you when I tell you that the phone rang as I was pulling in the driveway, it was Bob Billig. Um, Chicago, the show had just opened up, and Bob Billig was the conductor and supervisor on Les Miserables. So he knew me pretty well. He knew I was coming home. He's like, are you home yet? And I'm like, I drove, literally pulled in the driveway. And my, mom's comes, my mom comes out, and she says, Gary, there's, hi, there's a phone call for you. Somebody's on the phone, Bob Billig. This is the, like, the second word she said to me after, I'm so glad you're home. 
I was like, okay, Bob Billy. I pick up the phone and Bob says, when are you coming home? I'm like, well, I just got home. He said, well, you know, I need, we need a sub at Chicago. Are you interested in doing this? It'd be great. And I said, well, yes. <laughs> and, As a matter of fact, yes. So it snowballed from there. I learned that show. I learned Lion King. That was really pivotal. So when you uh, were, what was the show again? The, the um, first one, Bob asked you Bob to Bob, I know from Les Miserables. So it was Cats. I met Bob on Les Miserables. He was a supervisor on that and also Miss Sundown. So no, what did he well. ask you to sub on again? Chicago. Okay, you Chicago. Did you go in and uh, yeah. get on the drum set and make sure the pedal wasn't? Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's the first thing I did, I'm sure. You know. Yes. And Ronnie Zito's great drummer. I love that. Yeah, guy. I haven't met him yet. I, I, God. I should uh, reach out to him. You should because he's he's legendary. He's you know he's an iconic New York drummer. Did a ton of session work and mm. he's a beautiful musician. God, so great. His brother is Tori Zito, who's famous for a lot of arranging with Sinatra Sinatra arrangements and other things. That's his brother. But Ronnie is equally famous. Equally dynamic, incredible musicians. That's cool. You you did uh, Chicago and started your name. I guess got back around and started subbing on other shows. And how did yeah. you how did you wind up? You know, we brought up earlier the Gershwin's fascinating rhythm in 1999. What well, that came from me subbing at the Lion King. Ah, okay. Because Cynthia Courtman was was the keyboard was the associate conductor there, and she asked me if. She had the show, Fascinating Rhythm. She was the musical director. She knew that it was coming in. She asked me if I'd be interested in working on it with her. Of course, I said yes. And she said, yeah, it's going to be a Broadway show. And I was like, wow, it's amazing. So it was very short-lived. We played a few weeks. It wasn't well put together. It was basically different arrangements of Gershwin tunes. And they tried to cobble this. It really wasn't even a story. It was a review. It's called Gershwin's Fascinating Rhythm. And it the it was I think it was at the Ambassador Theater. No, it couldn't have been. I don't know what theater it was. Anyway, so yeah, it was oh at the Longacre Theater. Basically, it was a review of famous Gershwin tunes, sung and danced really well with great cast. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't a high budget. It wasn't enough to sustain it. Did you um, do workshops for your next show, Aida, or did you yes. wind up getting into that some other other way? Well, I, I was really lucky, Clayton. So I started subbing in Chicago. Then I ran into, literally ran into Carl German, who was the associate on Lion King at a deli. I'd just gotten home. He said, you're home? Well, why don't you come sub Lion King? And I told him, you know what? I'm not going to, Lion King had just opened up to like rave reviews like crazy. And I knew everybody in town was going to call Tommy Igo to try to get on the list. So I was like, you know, I got to learn Chicago. I'm not even going to go there. I know I'm going to sub at Cats and Les Mis and Miss Saigon because all three of those shows I'd played and they were all still open. And I had a chance to sub at Rent. So I had my hands full. I was like, I've got enough. And Carl, I was talking to Carl in this deli and lo and behold, Tommy Igo walks into the deli. And so I had met Tommy years ago. And Tommy says to me, dude, what are you doing, man? You come learn the show. What are you doing tonight? Literally, Clayton. It was Saturday between shows. And I'm like, well, I guess my black clothes are at the, you know, the studio, I, the music building. I go get them. Go get your clothes and come watch me. I'm like, 
okay. So an hour and a half later, I'm sitting next to Tommy, watching him throw down his book. And he says to me this, he goes, okay, this is how this is going to work. The show is a gigantic hit. As you know, we just opened. I know that I have a bunch of dates that I'm not going to be here for. I have a couple of subs, but I'm telling you right now, whoever learns the show that Joe Church really likes is probably going to get a lot of work. And that's all I needed to hear. That night, I went home and started transcribing everything that he played. I wrote it all down, um, you know, everything. And he plays a lot of notes. I love Tom. He plays a ton of notes. I learned it all. I went and played a show, and, and, and he was like, Joe was really impressed. And so um, I started playing there a lot. And then, fast forward, you asked how I got Aida. I was subbing there a bunch, a couple times a week, probably, for a couple of months. And Cynthia asked me if I wanted to work on Fascinating Rhythm. Around the same time, unbeknownst to me, Michael Keller, the contractor, had called the conductor of The Lion King, Joe Church, and said, who, who do you like on drums there? Who's a good sub for, for Tommy? And Joe said, well, there's this guy, Gary Selickson. This really sounds great. And my phone rang, you know, the next day. It's Michael Keller. So I have this show, and it's it's a... Uh, it's Elton John and it's Disney and we're going to, it's going to Atlanta for a couple of months. Would you be interested in working on this? And I said, of course. And he said, well, really you want to leave town? I'm like, for that? Yes, of course I want to leave town. And the timing was such that I could do fascinating rhythm at the same time Aida was having, it was called the Labyrinth Lives at that point. And, you know, it, the timing was such that I could do both of them. I did the short run of fascinating rhythm. Nobody knew it was going to close so fast. Then I went to Atlanta we started the pre-production work and then we went to Atlanta for the show called Elaborate Lives. They closed that version of it. They, they fired the choreographer and the director and the new choreographer, uh, this gentleman, Wayne Salento, wanted to start working right away. And so I got called with Jim Abbott and uh, Dance Arranger and we started rehearsing and it became Aida and Basically, that's what happened, and my career kept going from there. In part two of my conversation, we talk more about his experience with the show Aida, why he left that to originate the drum book for Wicked, him working with Phil Collins in the show Tarzan, his experience working with young kids who were really great musicians in School of Rock, his time at Billy Elliot, Motown the Musical, and now his new show, Mrs. Doubtfire, where he plays percussion. Stay tuned. <laughs>